Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night, and take this opportunity to do the uh, Parsha. Um, tonight's uh, talk podcast is being sponsored by Markowitz family, by Mesh Markowitz family, his brother Thrall, in memory of um, his father, who I knew very, very well, Leon Markowitz, to be already been Shlomanis, and was actually Chaim Shlomanis, I have to tell them. <laughs> I, w- I used to give the, the uh, I was a Balkari many years, I gave him a thousand alias. Uh, if you're from old Baltimore, you'll remember the Markowitz brothers. Um, I was very close with I was very close with Yankel. It was a big time with Chacham, and Tzvi, Arye. Let me put it this way: these were from the old families that were from long ago, a lot of t- before the Jewish community, the from community expanded tremendously. Um, when I was a kid, there weren't that many. I mean, there wasn't a tiny group, but it wasn't a big group either. And the Marcus family, hit, their grandfather was a famous rough here in Baltimore, literature rough, the old school of Baruch Bernum, and so forth. And they went, this is way back in the day when not so many people went to day school. It's hard, you know, now is it taken for granted. There's a multiplicity of yeshivas, day schools, elementary schools, high schools, and all that sort of thing. Back in the day, uh, you know, not so many people, I mean, all the Jewish kids went to public school. And then you went in the afternoon if you had some, you know, to like afternoon schools. And uh, the Markowitz actually ran a big afternoon school. This is in the heyday long ago of a different era when uh, synagogues, I'm talking about Orthodox synagogues, modern Orthodox, which were very big. They weren't so from, but they were very big. And the Orthodox um, had hundreds and hundreds of kids come for after public school every day. And they were the principals. And uh, uh, what do you call it? They went to near Israel back when it wasn't the thing to do. There's this, I'll tell you again, these are the people in the Shomer Shabbos when it was hard to be Shomer Shabbos then than it is, than it is today. And it was hard to keep kosher then than it is to be glad kosher today. And like I say, I knew Leon very well. And uh, his brother, Jerome, uh, we, we, we go back a long way. I knew the parents before the boys, who are, I call them boys, who are sponsoring the podcast were born. I remember when the when 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 Lee got married, so in the Nisham Shabbat Lee, the best tribute to the family is they have kids and grandchildren now going into Derech HaTorah. Um, that is the best, um, you know, tribute you can pay to someone's memory, and they should just keep to, on going in the right Derech, on the right Derech. Today, um, well, let me put it this way: last week I was talking about the Jews and real estate. I got a lot of feedback. I must have touched a button with people. Um, because I'm just trying to lay the, the background, which you don't necessarily see when you read the regular Chumash without going beneath the surface, and the regular Rashi's. You know what's what was the actual situation in situ in in Egypt during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu and, and all that. And my point was not everybody was working in the salt mines. Some were, 
And it says, Some were working, being worked to death. No question about it. But other Jews were not. Okay. Now, somebody sent me a very nice question. I call it a nice question that makes you think. And he said it like this. Can you please clarify question in my mind regarding your last podcast about the Israelites engaged in the Egyptian real estate market? If Yosef acquired all the property for Pharaoh and the populace became vassals or tenant farmers, under a tax rate, favorable tax rate, how could the Israelites subsequently buy property? And who would they buy it from? That's an excellent question. And it's a quite excellent question because it's good and it made me think. Those are the best. And here's what I was thinking. I'm sharing with you. First of all, Paro bought all the agricultural land. The city land that Dunn City bought. It says, He moved the population around. The Karka, the farmland, which was the most important part, that was sold to Pharaoh. That was given to Pharaoh. But I don't say, you know, I'm those why should the people in the real estate do that? Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's Libby Yomerly that that's what happened. Because the farmers are the ones that are producing the food. Maybe not. You know, I hear that. But if not, then here's what happened, I think. And again, I wasn't there. I'm just conjecturing. I say for the millionth time, I can only give you what I understand my take on it, this year. And that is the following. Um, think about what I'm about to say. If the king owns everything, then de facto, he doesn't. What do I mean by that? Let's say you have one of these countries like today, which is a total dictatorship. So, especially in the Oriental countries, you know, the Asian and Middle Eastern countries of yesterday year. The Melch owned all the karka. Some of you will remember that Shita and there was shown him about Dina Machusadina, which says something, it's the Ritva or the Ron, whoever, who says that there's no Dina Machusadina in Israel. Why? Because in Chutzlarz, the Melch owns everything. You see? So therefore, he can make the rules. You got to listen to his rules. But in Israel, no Melch owns the Karka. By us, every Jew has, you know, every Mishpacha the coming back from Egypt has its own freehold, to, you know, its, its own right to its own land. But that would be different. So Jews have lived in many countries and still do, which the government or the Melech legally owns everything. That is the basis in Helchaz Erevin, if I remember correctly, where you used to look for who's, who do you who do you get permission for to make the Erev, you know? And uh, they said, well, you go to the Melech or one of his representatives, because he owns everything. I, I own my house. You own your house. You do and you don't. Ultimately, the Melch does, but on a de facto basis, he lets people, you know, buy and sell the houses as well, although he can invoke his power anytime he wants. That's different than in a country where there's private property rights, and the government cannot simply take anything from you at all, unless it's a special case. So the United States government can take my house away, unless it passes along Congress and so forth, you know, and all that stuff, and has a good reason to do so. I think it's prohibited in Constitution, but I'm not a constitutional lawyer. But stop to take the property you can't do. Now, again, if there's a reason and all that sort of thing, it can happen. But, but Derek Klaub, it's not that way, which is why it's more complicated who you go to to get permission for the Skira, for the Eruv, when you need it, you know, the Skira, uh, uh, the Rishos, whatever. Uh, I know in Baltimore they go to the governor. That's how Rabbi Heinemann worked it out. I believe I'm right about that. Because the mayor doesn't have the power, but the governor theoretically has the power, etc., 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 and you have these Shilas and Shubas down the centuries 
in the early modern period particularly, I, I give a talk, and I, believe it or not, it's online somewhere, a talk I gave many years ago at a history conference that we had at the Library of Congress about the uh, Eruv and who you buy the, 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 rent, the, the rental from um, in the 15th, 16th, 1700s. Because it's a very interesting set of Shilas. And, uh, you know, I remember in Italy, they say you go to the, Republic, the governor of the Republic. Other places, you go to this group, to that group. It's not so simple. So where I'm going with all this is, let's say Pharaoh owns everything. I mean everything. So then how does life proceed? The answer is life proceeds as follows. Power owns everything, and he can invoke that power anytime he wishes. But on a Lamaisa dig a basis, I own my house, you own yours. I, it says that Yosef was mocking at the power of the land. He was. And therefore, from then on, power was the ultimate holder of the land. But what's going to happen over here? Everybody in the country, you know, do, doesn't live anywhere. They all live where they live. The only thing is the government can take it whenever they want. It reminds me of the situation of the Jews very often in their history when from the legal perspective they were slaves, Kenyan and Goof, to the king. But on the Lamaisa Dikabesa, it didn't matter. Take, for example, our ancestors who lived in Poland, the famous kingdom of Poland-Lithuania that I spoke about so many times in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. If you want to get legal about it, the Jews actually belonged, body and soul, either to the Malach or to the to Paritz, to the uh, landowner. In other words, the prince and the nobleman who owned that land. According to the law, they must own them lock, stock, and barrel. The only thing is, okay, so now you've got all these Jews that you own lock, stock, and barrel, and they live in some little village of Schnippeshek, Pipachek. What's the guy going to do with him? It's a waste of a good Jew. Just let him go and be a peasant, you understand? So the answer is, on a de facto basis, the nobleman of the king would say, yes, okay, I own you, theoretically, legally, in, in, in law. Well, the said, go do your thing. Because the more, the better you live and the more money you make, the bigger the, the, the take I get off the top in taxes. You see? So, if power owned everything, then power owned nothing. I don't mean he owned nothing, but in other words, life proceeded on a normal basis. So there was a real estate market. You get it? There was a real estate market. It doesn't say that as a result of Joseph getting all the land for Pharaoh, nobody ever bought or sold land after that in Egypt. It's not like that. Clever farmers will get land from less clever farmers. Now, I repeat, Pharaoh can, if he ever wishes to, if his high officials ever wish to, mess that up and interfere. They can do whatever they want. Right? Because after Joseph, Pyro has the last word on the subject. But short of using that last word in the subject, life went on. And so, de facto, the Jews, and this is such a Jewish thing, they say, yeah, yeah, according to the law, Pharaoh owns everything, but Lemaissa, you are here now. I'm going to buy this land off of you and we can make a deed. And unless Pharaoh, you know, changes the law or has a direct intervention from above, from the throne, you're going to sell the land and I'm going to own it. That's one possibility. The second possibility is Jews, like others, know all the shticks and tricks. And very often in Europe also they use straw men. You know what I mean? Notice you have somebody buy the land. He's not Jewish, but really you're the one buying. He's just a front man for you. There are so many different ways of doing this shtick that there's no doubt in my mind that they resorted to this. And this is the meaning when you see that there's so many references to Bate Yehudim. You know, uh, I was thinking, and I'll talk about it in, in a second, um, that uh, you will remember this. We're going now through the Ten Plagues, and this is Pasha's Veira. Next week will be the Makas Bechoros. Doesn't it say in one place, 
God passed through Egypt and killed everybody. And the other places says the Malach, Hamavis did it, right? Hamashkes, they did it. How do you reconcile the two? Was it God directly or was it the Malach Hamavis? So there are many, as you know, Terutzen, there are many dialectical uh, resolutions of that seeming contradiction. And one of the famous ones is that um, the Malach Hamavis just jumped over houses. So if he saw a house that had the blood on it, he skipped over it. But it could be a clever Egyptian said like this, I'm going to put my family in the Jewish house, right? That way I'll beat the uh, the Gzeira. So Kosh Baruch himself, Bechvot of Yatsmo, went into those houses. In other words, the house that had the Dom on the Mezuzah, so on the Pesach, the Jewish home, where the guy was hiding. And he killed the, the, the Bechor that was hiding in there. The, the Malchamovas again had to jump over the house. But Kosh Baruch himself, Bechvot of Yatsmo, could go in the house. I think it's a B'shem or somebody like that says that in the Chazal. You've heard that before. What does that tell you? There was this house and there was that house. House A belonged to Egyptian. House B belonged to a Jew. Now, maybe, like I said before, the Jew owned it through a third party or some trick or shtick or whatever. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Maybe he resorted to who, I don't know what. Or some, they just bribed the local officials and they put it on the land records anyway. These things happened. Okay? So that's the best I can think of. Um, in light of the question that was asked, which is a very good question, because it forces you to think more clearly about what were the consequences of the Joseph decree. Um, because I'll say again, life did not stop after the plague in the time of Joseph. Um, a capitalist economy of some sort or other proceeded. You have, therefore, a market system. You have buying and selling of metaltalin. And you also have buying and selling of, of karka. There's no economy. Think about what I'm about to say. There's no economy possible without the buying and selling of karka in some form or another. You get it? I don't want to go explain at great lengths, but if you, you're intelligent enough to figure it out or look it up yourself, there's no such thing as an economy without the buying and selling of karka. And so that was going on, even if Pharaoh had the ultimate control and could intervene anytime he wanted to. So Paro, if he said, I want to take Plony's farm or something like that, did not have to go to a constitutional lawyer, did not have to run it against the Supreme Court and all that stuff. <laughs> He's Pharaoh. But he didn't do that all the time. In fact, he did that very rarely, only when it's necessary. That's the best I can think of. Uh, but again, I, it's a good question. There's another fellow, Dr. Englord in, in Lakewood, who sent me a ball. He's like this. I can I can bring a riot to what you're saying from a bunch of Makoros. And some of them are very interesting and I want to share it with you. Um, I want to share with you. Uh, one is, and this is Gvaldic, in, and I and I hat tip to him, uh, to Dr. Engelard in, in in Lakewood. It's a, it's a medrash. Now I opened up my rusty, trusty uh, Menachem Kasher, on the Pasuk of Ayogar Ma'am over in Parshish Bella. So here are the Jewish people, they left Egypt. They wander 40 years later. They come to Moab, as we all know the story, and they have the encounter with Bilam and Balak. But prior to that, it says the Moabites were terrified of the Jews. Why are you terrified of the Jews? After all, Moshe Rabbeinu was not out to kill the Moabites. He was just looking to pass through the land. Why are you afraid? So there's a lot of different interpretations. But here's one from the Medjah Tamkuma. I'm reading from an from Kasher's Thing in Medjah Tamkuma, it's in Bamibra Chaf Bey's Gimel. Listen, listen closely. Vayogar Moav, Vayogar can mean like you're scared, but it can mean a lot of things. Vayogar Moav, Dover Acher, Vayogar Loshen Geir, dwelling. 
Shoroin Liatzmon Kigalim Kigarim Baomo. Because the Moabites saw themselves, they freaked out that they would become strangers in their land because the Jews are buyable to real estate. Viyamru, they said, Look at these Jews. Yardulam Mitzrayim Lagur, Vayachsu Oso. Imamish what I said last week. The, the Jews went down to Lagur, notice not to buy land. They also, when they bought land, bought in right? And by the time it was over, they were the ones renting out the house to the Egyptians. Notice they cornered the, the, the real estate market. They owned all the car, all the, all the houses. And they were the ones who were the landlords of the Egyptians. Which obviously the Medish Nankum is, is translating as follows that God said, when you leave Egypt, I want you to take clay chesed, or clay sobe, some olos, as we know. So every Jewish woman, when she leaves Egypt, will borrow from her shechena, from her neighbor, and from her tenant, <laughs> from the from the guy who's living in her house. You get it? You're going to leave Egypt. So you're going to call the tenants and say, I want to borrow this, that, and the other, and hit the road. Uh, that's exactly what they're saying. They say, according to this, Moab said, like, oh, vey, here come the Jews. Next thing you know, it'll be Jackson. It'll be Tom's River. You know, it'll, it'll be all gone. And he even mentioned to me some story about a Haitian woman who was really angry at the Jews. And he said, why? And she said something along the lines that she's from Haiti. And they let some of the Jews in, running away from the Holocaust during the war. But then these same Jews they were nice to went and, bought, and got rich and bought up the real estate market. And next thing you know, they uh, owned all the land and jacked up the rents on the Haitians. You know, which is what we're talking about. So notice, let's put it this way. This Medrash Tanchum and Ezzel is exactly going with the idea that Jews, that they got very, in other words, unbridled and learning the ropes. And that's what the Jews do always. So the ropes in Egypt were simply, you had to figure out what the laws are. The laws are what I just described. Paro is the official ruler, owner of all the land. But within it, there's a real estate market. Just like, for example, off the top of my head, think of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, which was so humongous, went from Budapest to Baghdad and beyond, right? If you want to get technical on it, the Sultan owned everything, you know? If he wanted to, he could take anything. The Sultan owned everything, but not on a Lamaisa Dika basis. Really, there was an economy. There was constant movement of Matalton and Karka, you know? And, and at times, it was a thriving economy. So what it means is like this. The sultan does not exercise his option because it's ultimately to his benefit, economic benefit, not to exercise his option. If I own all the land and I tell everybody, get off my land, I will use land, nobody's working on it. You see? And if I have slaves, it's not as good as having free people working on it because then they have the economic incentive. So something like this happened in Egypt, it's pretty clear. Right? And you have, by the way, it just occurred to me um, in this week's Parsha, Actually, in la- at the end of last week's parsha, Hashem says to Moshe, "Go back to Egypt." All those who don't like you are dead. And you know the famous Rashi, the Chazal says, "Dosan Baviram, who are Jewish." And by the time it's over, so what do you mean they're dead? Because they weren't dead. Yardim Echsem, they they lost their money in the stock market. Yardim Echsem, they went they they from being rich they went poor. How can Dosan Aviram, who are Jewish, who are slaves, be rich? Ad Kedekach, do you say now they just crashed and lost all, they're like, died. You understand? A rich person loses everything, it's like he's dead because all of his friends and everything leave him, all of his power is gone. Now, how can Tosan Aviran, you know, Yardim Echsem, what Echsem did they have if they were slaves? Oh, Shema that there were plenty of Jews, 
who uh, were doing well. Who were doing well. And uh, there is a Meshachachmi with Maromi. Took me a minute to find it. It's in Vaira. And you take a look at this. Um, now, again, the Meshachachmi here is suggesting this. Yitachem. We don't know this because we don't have a full description. You never do in the Chumash of the background. Let's go in the background. But an intelligent person, it's, we argue, can discern what's going on in the background, at least parts of it. And you see, it's not a black and white picture that Jews are all terrible slaves, and here comes Moses and redeeming them and all the rest of it. But rather, as I always say, the Kotzeruch was the rich people, the Vodakosha was the poor. You understand? They wouldn't listen to Moshe. Half the Jews wouldn't listen to Mikotzeruch. Didn't have the time for this because they were doing too well. When Moshe said, let's leave all this stuff, walk away from your swimming pool, walk away from your you know, patio, and go 40 years in the desert. They said, nah. <laughs> Moshe, when you get to Israel and everything's settled, send me a telegram and I'll calm myself then, you know? You see? Uh, and look, listen to this. The Meshachachma says, on the enigmatic verse that is in our parsha in Boera, where it says that um, after Kotzeruch uh, Avodakosha, it says, Vayitzavim al Bnei Yisrael, Vayal Palam Parim Melchim Mitzrayim, Lotzis Bnei Yisrael, Meretz Mitzrayim. So what do you mean, Vayitzavim al Bnei Yisrael? He commanded them, to told Moshe Rabbeinu, he commanded them to the Bnei Yisrael. Now there are many interpretations, and I always like the one that says, you have to take over and be the rabbi, the Jews, even though they'll stone you and beat you up because the Jews are ungrateful, so-and-so's. Every rabbi in the world has to sympathize with that interpretation, but that's not what the Meshachachma says. Rather, he says, And I'm reading a Meshachachma now. There were Jews who were rich, Gedoli Uma, and they were Sarim Nechbanim they were princes. In other words, not every Jew was a slave. There was a class of Jews. You hear what I'm saying? There was an entire class of Jews who never were slaves, and the opposite were just real estate millionaires. And as millionaires, they had more connections with their fellow class, economic class, than with their blood brothers and sisters, and they would enslave the Bnei Yisrael Avodim Shemachar So, in other words, let's say I was, and he's going to say it's the tribe of Reuben and Shimon. So, let's say I was from the tribe of Reuben, according to this Meshachachma, and let's say I'm a smart guy. So, I become a millionaire. I'm going to invest now in a project. The project is to grow so and so much uh, wheat, for example, on certain land. How do I get people to work that land? I buy slaves and make the slaves work. I hire taskmasters to make sure the slaves don't fool around and beat the heck out of there. And they'll they'll work on my fields and grow the grain and I'll make the profit. Where do I get slaves? I buy them in the slave market. Who am I buying? Jews. Who cares? Who cares? Ah, you're Jewish? No. Don't the Egyptians have Egyptian slaves also, you know? If a guy's in a low class, then you're a slave. So there were Jews who didn't mind having fellow Jews as slaves. I repeat, this is not me, but the Meshachach I'm talking. And he suggests, now again, I repeat, 
Is he a talking? It's a Ulai. He suggests. He has a hunch. This is the thing. Is Reuben Shimon Levi. Now we've all heard that Levi wasn't a Shubin because they were learning. Right. But he's going beyond that. He's saying also Reuben and Shimon, which by the way would explain Dawson Aviram, because Dawson Aviram were from Reuben. Okay. The Ulai Hayukhaim Shloshishwatim, Reuben Shimon Levi, Shanhigu Sarabim is right. They, they, they were rich in Egypt. They had Sarara in Egypt. So they were not the Jews who walked around and worked like dogs. They were the class of Jews who were not like that. And that's why, as famously, Levi ends up with no karka. And the Meshachachma is, uh, what's the right word? Discerning? No. He's suggesting, he's intuiting that you see that by Reuben and Shimon because Reuben ends up getting no karka in Eretz Yisrael, but rather in Eretz Yisrael. I know that Reuben could have gotten I get it. Reuben could have gotten karka in Eretz Yisrael. That's the whole story with the two and a half tribes. But Lamaisa, by the time the story is over, and remember, this story is told and recorded in great detail in the Chumash. So if it's there, it must be for a reason. He's saying it was sort of predestined that Reuben um, should end up not being having karka in Eretz Yisrael, but only in the Yarnin. And Shimon, Achalkin Biyakum, Kamish Ramban, and we know that Shimon didn't get any real karka in the same way the other tribes either brought bits and pieces here and there. And that may reflect the fact that they did not serve as slaves in Egypt. Uh, and the Meshachachma goes on to say, a lot of them were Bnei Chorin Harbi. You hear what he said? There were a lot of free Jews, Bissarim and Richies, Richie Riches. They bought slaves. So now the government had more slaves than they knew what to do with, and so they sold them on the market to uh, to others, including to Jews. You see, including the Jews. So this completely modifies how you ordinarily you imagine the slavery in Egypt. You see, all the Bnei Israel. Uh, some Jews were bad off, and they were the ones by Yonchem and Israel and Avoda. Other Jews were not bad off at all. And by the way, if this is true, you can totally hear that guy said, Why the heck should I go to Eretz Israel? You tell me it's a land flowing with milk and honey? I got a land flowing with milk and honey here in Egypt. You see? I'm doing very fine. You tell me the system is anti Semitic? It works for me. It works for me. I'm rich, you know? And by the way, don't think. That these rich guys didn't have Egyptian guys, slaves also. The slave system is what it is. People in one class enslaved the people of the other. It just was, you know, religion blind. Uh, okay? And that's why, the interpretation here, according to Meshachachim, it's based on a Yushalmi in Rosh Hashanah. He says the, the interpretation would be that God commanded Moses at the very beginning of his career, right, in the beginning of Vo'era, the beginning of his career, they said, you have a two-fold mission, A and B. you got to persuade Egypt to let the slaves go, you got to persuade the Jews to let the Jewish slaves go. Imagine that. The Jews to let the Jewish slaves go. You know where you find this exactly? In the book of Nehemiah, where he had to fight with the richy riches to let the Jewish slaves go. And he said, and in the Chem, he says, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And so on and so forth. You know, Moshe Abeno had his hands full 
Not only had to deal with all the junk from Pharaoh, he also had to deal with all junk from the Jews. Why don't we have this said explicitly in the Chumash? First of all, I do not, I'm not God. But second of all, is 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 a Chel Hashem, you understand? No, let's put it this way. That would really hang the dirty linen in public. We don't need to do that, right? That would really hang the dirty linen in public. So I think all these sources um, confirm the problem, which was that uh, there were enough Jews who had the wherewithal and the freedom, even in the worst days of slavery, to operate on their own, and they were taken over the country. You understand? They're taken over the country. Why did power not stop them? You see over here, clever people can beat any system. I mean, that, that That's what it looks like to me. Like I say, use a straw man, use a front man, use a phony name, you do this, you do that. Face of Nisht. Remember, if they were in the holding in the Memtesh Shari Tumah, Ish as a shukitzin of lohi shlichu. In Egypt, they say like this: You want to own land? You got to bow down to the idol. Do the the, the right type of jewels, I guess. No problem. <laughs> you know that? That's what it takes to corner this neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? It 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 it, it, it corner the neighborhood. It's it's what he calls. You know, it's gonna. Uh, I'll, I'll bow down to the idol. So it turns out the real god was Eglazov. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wasn't the gods of Egypt? The real God was Eglaz. They worshiped the gold. No, they worshiped the money. Uh, this is this this took the Jews down uh, always, and it was a big problem in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. If what I'm saying is true, it must have been that this is the 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 four fifths or whatever that didn't leave Egypt, or at least it's certainly a chelik of them, because the rich guys I'm talking about don't want to leave, and you can bring twenty plagues, <laughs> not ten plagues. It's not the point. Point is, it's not in their interest as they perceive it you know, to leave. And if they're holding a Memtesh, Shari Tuma, what that means is they were pretty far gone. And basically, even if you told them, look, your children will be Jewish, your grandchildren will be lost, they'll be Egyptian. Eh, so what? Isn't that where all the American Jews, I'm sorry to say, are holding today out there? You know, it's all about money. Do you want the, the kid to marry someone from the right class? And with a college education and this and that, and the other make a lot of money. What if they're not Jewish? No, they're not Jewish. You know, I tried. It didn't work. Uh, that's very scary. So it turns out, I think, that the progress that you see in, in Shmoz and Beira is of one uh, stitch that is talking about this real problem of the Jews in the background, the bad kind of Jews. And I'll conclude with this thought. If you think about it, and this is just funny to me since I'm hooked on the real estate idea, not all 10 plagues are against the real estate, but some of them are. So, for example, when they brought the hailstorms, I mean, that depressed the value of the property. This could be Hashem's way of saying like this. Yes, I'm busting the Jews, but I'm mostly busting the guys who have all their money invested in this year's crop because they just send out a hailstorm. Maybe in Goshen, which was the original Jewish area, as the Shevet Levi area, there wasn't hailstorms. But in the rest of Egypt, there was hailstorms. So now if I'm Jewish and I own a, a, a big thing in upstate New York, or you know what I mean? In, in, in South uh, Jersey or something like that, and here comes a hurricane or a hailstorm, or uh, let's put it this way, a uh, 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 devilish uh, the 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 what am I thinking of the arov you know the wild animals, the devil the killing of the animals itself, all of which devalues radically the real estate market. Again, there's no point of buying land if it's going to be destroyed by plagues, or there's not going to be any animals to run it, or it's going to be hit by a locust. Or Kazeva, Kazeva, Kazeva. Now, not all of them are designed that way, 
but enough were that by the time the ten plagues were over, the whole market had crashed. And that's Hashem's way of saying, I think, to these richie riches, he said, listen, if it's all about the money, I just made it, they took a big hit in the market. You understand? Your 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 uh, shares, you know, went down. Your, your the, the value of investments crashed. So why don't you leave and go to Eretz Yisrael? See, so why don't you leave and go to Eretz Yisrael? As we all know, it didn't work out that way. Could it be that that's the um, final three plagues? You, know, you get the locusts, which devastate all the crops and crash the real estate. The Jews still didn't change their mind. The next plague is when they died, which is the plague of darkness. Because that would be the juxtaposition, maybe. That would be the juxtaposition of the plague of the locusts followed by the plague of the, dark, uh, of the darkness, which provided a opportunity for all these bad Jews to leave the scenes without anybody knowing about it. That's part of the cover-up, which seems to be a deliberate part of the biblical narrative. Anyway, uh, I don't want to overrun my time. Once again, I want to, it says food for thought, I want to thank the Marquises again. I pay uh, tribute again to Leon. I remember, he was a good friend of mine, actually. Uh, I used to speak to him at great length sometimes. Uh, to the Marquises family and the Shamash, I believe, I, think, I believe tomorrow is the yard site. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.